0: So this morning we're continuing our new sermon series through the book of Exodus and we'll be in chapter 2. I'm calling this series, Following Jesus, Leading Like Moses, Following Jesus, Leading Like Moses. As I said, as Christians, we believe that all of the Bible is inspired. Not just the New Testament. We believe the Old Testament is inspired by God as well. And so Christians who follow Jesus, who believe that he has fulfilled the law of Moses, he's fulfilled the promises of God recorded in the Old Testament, who believe that a new covenant has been made, and it is it which defines our relationship with God. And yet we believe that the story of God In the Old Testament is the story of the God of the new. And so as we look at the Old Testament, we see rich life material that serve as examples for us in how to live our lives. And the Apostle Paul says this expressly in 1 Corinthians, that these things were written for us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So those living in the New Covenant dispensation are considered to be living in the last days. In case you didn't know that, we're living in the last days. It's not, uh, are we going to be living in the last days at some point? Let's turn on the news and find out. No, the Bible says we've been living in the last days since the advent of Christ. This is what the Apostle Peter taught in the book of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and the church is birthed for the first time and the gift of tongues was being used, which was not a strange language. They were human languages foreign to the speaker who had never studied them and yet they were spoke perfectly in the dialect of those who were present in Jerusalem gathered for the Feast of Pentecost from all over the world. And those that, who could not understand them, Suppose the men, the disciples, to be drunk. And the Apostle Peter corrects them by quoting from the prophet Joel, who said that the Spirit would be poured out when? In the last days. And Peter says, this is. Is what you're looking at today and he said that 2,000 years ago so we who live in the New Covenant dispensation are said to be living in the last days and that should be a weighty matter for all of us we are not living in a a place of indefinite time which is how many of us tend to think about life. It's just going on as it always has before. We are living in the last days, and we have been doing so, and Christ is coming again, and he said, you will know not the hour. And so we are to occupy, we are to be busy, we are to be investing our lives in his kingdom and doing his work until he returns. That is how you and I are to be found, doing the will of God. The book of Exodus enables us to do this by forming leaders after God's own heart. I said last week that I believe God wants this church to be a church of leaders, not just congregations of followers where everybody is just a follower of somebody else. God wants to make leaders out of this church. Everyone is enabled to become a leader who leads others to Christ and teaches them what it means to be a godly leader. So we're going to be looking at Exodus 2. If you have your Bibles, please open up there. We'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. Please follow along with me now as we read the Word of God. This is Exodus 2. This is God's Word. And a man of the house of Levi went and took his wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, And her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we just pray that you would breathe life into these words so that they become living words to us. We ask that you would open up the eyes and ears of our hearts this morning so that we would not only think through these things with our minds, but that we would receive them with our hearts. We pray that you would mold and fashion men and women after your own heart this morning. Lord, if we've come in with desires for other things, if we've come in with idols that like Israel, even though you're in our lives, we still look to these golden calves that you want to take out of our lives. We pray that we would give these things up to you this morning. Help us to become people who know how to lead others by being totally and completely dependent upon you. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. I could say this about scripture, but I'm, I'm thinking particularly about the life of Moses. The life of Moses is so rich, and I'm only going to share three points from this chapter, but I just want you to know, by no means am I saying that's all you can get out of what's here. I kind of look at it this way. How many of you have been snorkeling in Hawaii? Has anybody been snorkeling in Hawaii? Okay, so I lived in Maui a long time ago before I was married, before was kids. Feels like a lifetime ago. Um, but I remember going snorkeling. It's an amazing experience. You get your snorkel gear, you go in, and as soon as you're under the water, I mean instantly, it's not like there's only certain good places. Pretty much anywhere I went, random, non-touristy type places, it was just amazing. The brightness of the colors of the fish and the coral, it's just amazing. It's so rich and beautiful and vivid that you really have seen something, and you come out and you want to tell everyone, but by no means have you seen the the whole ocean. You, you've only seen this one small part, and I feel like that's kind of how my study of the life of Moses is. I, I, I do not pretend to have seen all of it. There's more I have seen. I don't even have time to say, but I just want to share some of these vivid images that I've seen here as I've spent time in God's Word and thinking particularly of this theme of leadership. And so there's three points I want to share. Number one is this. Adversity in life can be a tool in God's sovereign hand. Adversity in life can be a tool in God's sovereign hand. So let's make no mistake about the life of Moses. You would not want to choose his life. You do not want to be born. I mean, a lot of us, I don't know if I grew up hearing stories of the Great Depression. My Grandpa Woody, who was a World War II veteran, my grandma Corrine, they're both with Jesus now, sweet, wonderful people, and they would pass on stories of what it was like to live during the Great Depression, stories of literally hiking through three feet of snow with two children tucked under her arms with their last 25 cents to get some milk at the store. Stories of the children in the family saving up their money so that together they could afford a pack of M&Ms and then they would split up the M&Ms and fight over who got the red ones. Stories like that. How many of you here want to be born during the Great Depression? Nobody would want that. But what kind of people did the Great Depression produce? From my perspective, Both from looking at living examples and studying, it produced a generation of very strong people. People that knew what it was like to face adversity, and rather than sitting around and crying about it and saying, I wish this didn't happen, it was a generation of people who knew we've got to do something about it. Moses' situation is worse. This whole scene in Exodus 2 would not have happened if not for the fact that, A, Israel is a nation of slaves. So how would you like to be born in slavery? And then, B, A, infanticide was state mandated that every male child would be killed. That is the circumstances into which Moses was born. If it weren't for those circumstances, there's probably no other way that the son of a Hebrew slave would be raised in the palace of Egypt. What other way is Moses going to get there to receive the education and the training of Egypt, which is spoken of in Acts chapter 7 in the Martyr Stephen's sermon, summarizing the Old Testament. Brilliant sermon. And he says that Moses was schooled in all the... He got the best education there was. He got trained in jurisprudence. And though we believe that the God inspired and even spoke and even at times dictated the word to Moses, we ought not to think that Moses' training was of no value. That it was just an accident, he ended up being a judge over all the people of Israel, that he just happened to be the one writing the laws, handing them down and executing. That, well, that just magically happened. God prepared Moses, and adversity was necessary. Adversity is something that none of us would probably ask for. And yet if you look at what adversity can produce, We can see that adversity is not something that disqualifies a leader. We can see that adversity is the thing that makes a leader. There might be historical exceptions, but in my leadership studies of history, most of the great leaders were born in bad times, went through very hard things, had the types of lives none of us would probably ask for, and yet they brought about some of the greatest people who lived some of the most meaningful lives we could ever imagine. Now, I say adversity, but I also say in the hand of God's sovereignty. That's important. Adversity without the grace of God can also produce some of the meanest, cruelest tyrants of history. Some of the worst kings and, and Princes and anybody else I've ever seen in history. Actually, I'm a history nut, and there's a book, and it's—I know it sounds so encouraging before bedtime, but the most evil people in history. Yeah, a little light reading before bed. But really, it's all these—these these people were all people that rose to power, and they were smart, and they were gifted, and talented, and born in adversity. And the grace of God did not touch their hearts, and they became hardened because of the adversity. They became worse for it, and they became some of the biggest monsters in human history. So I'm not here to say, oh, adversity is just going to be good for everybody, or that it doesn't matter how you respond to it. But what I can say is that adversity in life can be a tool in God's sovereign hand, to shape you into the man or woman God wants you to be. God's sovereignty is all over this picture. When other male ch- children are dying, Moses is saved. Furthermore, I love that the New King James rightly translated she took, verse 3, an ark. Some of the other translations say a basket. Practically looking at it, sure, that's fine, it's a basket. But the word is teva. Teva is the same word used in Genesis 6 when God told Noah to build a boat. He told him to build a teva, an ark, an instrument of deliverance. Certainly the Hebrew reader, as they hear that Moses was delivered by a tevah, he was delivered by an ark, certainly they are seeing once again the sovereign hand of the Creator, God, working to save the remnant of his people. That that's not an accident. And so too those who trust in the Lord who allow God's grace to have its perfect work in their adversity, can trust that God, too, will have an ark for them. That God knows how to save His people through trouble, through difficulty, through pain, and through tragedy. He has an ark for His people. God's sovereignty is all over it. Imagine this. Every parent has to give up their children at some point in life. And I don't know that there's ever an easy time for that to happen. But how many of you who are parents would want to give up your child at three months old? I mean, we're, we're having, you know, adult children, and then I got children who are almost adults again. And just letting them go at some point, at 18, at 19, at 20, at some point, it's just hard to do. You love them. You remember, I raised you. When you came into this world, you weren't independent, and you slowly got more dependent. You depended on me for everything. And that's how I looked at you from day one, as someone who needed me for everything. And the journey of being a parent is a journey of letting go. You're always having to let go of what you love. Because that is what's best. Slowly, over time, Letting go a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. But imagine these circumstances when the mother of Moses is forced to give up her child at three months, not knowing what will happen. And that's always the case when a parent lets go of their children. You never know what will happen. And if you're like me, you're scared. What will happen to them? What will the world do to them? (laughs) What will they do to the world? It depends on your kid, right? It's like, what will they do? I'm scared. I, I, I don't want to. But the circumstances have forced her. I must let him go. He may die. Now remember, this is the Nile. What do you know about the Nile? Is it a safe place? No, you've got the crocodiles, and that's the scary images. But what's the animal that kills the most in Africa? hippopotamus. Thousands of pounds. These these things still, even today, they're, they're killers. This is not a safe place for people to go swimming. And yet here she is putting her child into the most dangerous places in the world the child could possibly be because there really is no choice. It's either possible and likely death or certain death. That's the choice this mother made. And it just so happens that not only the dangers that face anyone who goes down to the Nile would face, God's sovereign over it. So not only does that not happen, not only is the child not devoured by wild animals, but someone meets him immediately. A savior is arranged for Moses. And it's not just any savior. What is this a coincidence? Or is this the hand of God? Just at the moment when a three-month-old is sent down a river full of ravenous animals, not only does someone get there to stop that from happening, the person who gets there is the daughter of Pharaoh. And it just so happens that the daughter of Pharaoh, unlike her father, because you might have thought, well, she'll be like her father. What would she have done if she were like her father? Sometimes the apple apparently does fall far from the tree. If she was like her father, take this vile, despicable Hebrew child and kill it. But she says, dad, I don't care that that's what you want to do. I see this baby is beautiful. It says she beheld him and he was beautiful. The sight of this baby touched her heart and she says, I'm going to save him. I'm going to use my power and my position as the daughter of Pharaoh to protect this innocent baby who is not my own from my own father. That that's the person who just so happens to get down to Moses. Then we have Moses' sister. And this brave young lady goes down and she's willing to watch. And brilliantly... And there's non-biblical Jewish tales about her, like just that she was brilliant. She goes down, and just in that moment, because she couldn't have known this was going to happen, she did not plan for it, and yet in that moment, she sees that it's Pharaoh's daughter, and she rushes to her and says, do you want me to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him for you? That's genius, perfect timing, absolutely genius, and it's not done. Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, you can't control someone else's response to you. She says yes, and not only that, she's going to pay Moses' own mom to nurse her own son. The hand of God's sovereignty is over everything that's going on, even though the bigger scene, if you look at it, is utter chaos and horror slavery, infanticide, wild animals. And yet, God's hand, God's sovereign hand, is present. I believe that if these adverse circumstances had not happened, we would not see Moses in the pages of Scripture. It is the adversity. It is God allowing the adversity to take place. But it's also God's deliverance through the adversity that makes such stories of great leadership possible. What adversity do you need to give to the Lord this morning? Because as I said, adversity by itself is no guarantee you will turn out better. But with God's hand, I can guarantee you will turn out better. You will turn out stronger, braver, more courageous, more humble, more compassionate, more kind. But if you don't trust God with your adversity and you sink back into base, human motivations, you will become worse for it. And I know in the moment, many of us, and I've done this too, you just want to survive. You're like, I don't even have any grand lofty visions of being a wonderful moral person. I just want to survive. And that's, that's all I care about. And I get that, and I understand that, but I just want to beg you, please, look to the Lord. Keep eternity in mind. This is but for a moment though it feel like an eternity. Eternity is where God will reveal all of these things to us, so trust in him. What adversity do you need to give to him this morning and say, Lord, I believe if I give this to you, not only is this not going to work out for my destruction, it's going to work out for my good. Secondly, in God's economy, failure is often a necessary preparation for success. Look at verses 11 through 15. So we've basically, we've fast-forwarded 40 years. So I don't know if you know this, but Moses' life takes place in three stages. Three stages of 40. 40, 40, and 40. He's 40 years in Egypt, he's 40 years in Midian, and he's 40 years in the wilderness. 40, 40, and 40. Three different stages. And you'll notice we pass through two of them in one chapter. The first chapter of his life, we go right through it. You get the backstory in chapter one, but really his own life, that's chapter two. Forty years. Then the next 40, we go right through that. And by the time we get to chapter three, we're getting the last 40 of his life. It's the last third of Moses' life that is the most important. I think that right there is something people need to hear. You know, you can look at different cultures and you realize that there are big differences between cultures and their value of age. Some cultures worship youth and some worship age. The Greeks were known for worshiping youth and some would say America is more like that. We worship youth. Other cultures know. If you're young, you're, you're, I mean, no offense if you're young today, but, you know, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, you, you don't know anything. If, you know, and people are like, oh, I don't want to have gray hair. I don't. Actually, you weren't considered worth listening to unless you did. Okay, and I'm, not, I'm saying those are both extremes. We're looking for the wisdom of God, which transcends age. But you see what I'm saying? There, there can be a big difference, and I think in our culture, we tend to think anything great you're going to do, it's going to be earlier on that the big, better portion of your life is when you're lung. And if you're talking about physically, and again, we're doing things medically and scientifically to prolong uh, uh, physical abilities for longer, which I'm thankful for, that's wonderful. But people still tend to say, well, if you're going to do something great, it's going to be in your 20s, you know, maybe in your 30s because you still have some of your energy, but then you have a little more of the wisdom. But then after that, it's like, whatever. You're just kind of you know, resting on the foundation of what you already did. But in Moses' life, we see his life's work was not till the last third It's the last third of his life that the rest of the Pentateuch spends its time taking about. That's something to keep in mind. But I want to say that here as we get to the the end of Moses' 40-year period in Egypt, we see what I'm going to call an apparent failure. You could argue it's not a failure, but in a sense it is. Part of failure is not so much an objective announcement upon an event, but rather our feelings about it you know what I'm saying? When something goes wrong, you try to do something or a relationship doesn't work out, you feel, feel like a failure. Okay? But years down the road later, you look back and you can say, though I felt like a failure, and maybe I don't know how else I would have felt, but I can look back and say that I wasn't because this was working towards this thing over here. And what we see in God's economy is that failure is often a necessary preparation for success. So what we see here is early on, even before we're given any call of God, so as far as scripture is concerned, there's no call of God yet on Moses' life. He hasn't heard it. And yet already in him there's a dream there's a dream to be a deliverer, to be a savior. And we see him execute it right here. He comes upon an Egyptian beating a Hebrew man one day. And we don't know how long this has been going on. Well, you know, was he an Egyptian? Was he a Hebrew? He was raised both. He was legally adopted. The language says that Pharaoh's daughter legally adopted him. He was raised as an Egyptian. He's so Egyptian that when he runs to Midian and the Midianites see him, they say an Egyptian saved us. That's how Egyptian he was. But he's wrestling with, but I'm a Hebrew. We don't know when exactly he found out. Did his mother tell him she was nursing him for three months? Three-month-year-old's not going to know that. When did she tell him? Even if she wanted to, would it have been safe for him to know that he was a Hebrew? We don't know when he knew. But at some point he knew, I'm not really an Egyptian, even though I live like one. I'm a Hebrew. And he started having compassion. And remember, he's got it about as good materially as anyone possibly could. As far as wealth, security, power, prestige, he's got it. But something was growing in him that meant more to him than all of that. And it was the plight of his people. And so one day he sees an opportunity. This has probably been growing up in him for a time. He sees an opportunity. And without the call of God, he seems to to try to make the call of God happen for himself. He seeks to become a savior. And he kills the Egyptian man beating the Hebrew slave, buries him in the desert. And we can know that he's trying to to create a call for himself because not only does he do that, so he kills the Egyptian, rescues him, but then when he sees two Hebrews fighting, what does the text say in verses 11 through 15? It says he came upon two Hebrews arguing and he seeks to arbitrate over them. And a legal term is actually used. Why have you committed a crime against your neighbor, against your fellow Hebrew? He's setting himself up as a judge a deliverer, and a judge. The very thing later God will call him to do but has not called him to do yet. And he seeks to do it. And in sort of a foreshadowing of what the rest of his career is going to be like, in his effort to save and to be probably appreciated, he's rebuked. Who made you a prince and judge over us? Moses then finds out That not only has he failed to win the people he wants to save, he's lost everything in the world. And he is now running for his life to the desert where he has nothing. He went from having everything to nothing from what we know in a day. Lost it all. From his felt perspective, he was a failure. From his felt perspective, Moses was a failure. But what I want to say and what we learn is in God's economy, failure is often a necessary preparation for success. What do I mean? Why? Well, I've read many different quotes on leadership, and there's an extent to which worldly or secular leadership principles and studies can be useful for Christians and there's an extent to which Christian leadership studies can be useful for non-Christians. But there's always going to be some incongruity. There's always going to be some things that are different. When I looked at, I found quotes from great non-Christian leaders about failure. You know, And they'll say, hey, if you're not failing, you're not trying. Maybe you've heard that thing. The only way to guarantee that you won't fail is to never succeed at anything. So there's these quotes about just driving, keep going. But that's not what I'm talking about. What purpose would God have for allowing failure in our lives? And the answer is character. The need for character. The world cares most about choosing a gifted person. God is most concerned with choosing a humble person. Who God looks for in a leader, a CEO, whoever is not what everyone else is looking for. We see this even, and by the way, and it's not like Christians have this dialed in. We can often have a bad history of choosing leaders. Israel didn't have a great history of choosing leaders. When Israel has the opportunity to choose a king for the very first time, who do they pick? Why? Oh yeah, great, great, because he was tall and good-looking. Is this a dating website, or are you choosing a king for God's holy people? Like, come on, he's tall, dark, and handsome? That's your criteria for a leader. And he turns out to be a failure. And then God chooses the guy who wasn't even invited into the candidate pool by his own dad, by the way. So if your daddy didn't love you, well, you know, you didn't think David was worth bringing to the audition. God sees the heart. And by the heart, it doesn't just mean your feelings. It means your character. That's what the Bible is talking about. When it talks about the heart, God looks at the heart. It means he looks at the character. And failure is often an indispensable tool in humbling you. Reminding you that you're dependent on God. That you're not in control of everything. That it's not all about you. That it's God ultimately who gives success. That's what God wants from His people. And I think what's happening here is Moses is learning, look, I'm going to be called to be both a deliverer and a judge, the very two things I tried to be. But God needed to teach me, without him, I am nothing. Without him, I cannot do it. God wasn't saying, well, I'm going to punish you for wanting to do those. No, those were good desires. But I need to allow you to fail in attempting to do them for yourself. And then one day, and in this case, many days later, I will do this in you. And then you will know that it is me who has brought you here. Lastly, point number three. The Christian leader must be taught to look to God to provide and to call. Verses 16 through 25. What you see here is this records what happens after Moses kills the Egyptian, loses everything he owns in one day, and flees for his life. This is kind of an amazing thing when you think of identity, and I know many people you know, talk about midlife crisis and identity crisis. We're having new kinds of identity crises, even gender identity crisis, all kinds of identity crises. And even in the life of Moses, you see, he wrestled with multiple identities. Am I a Hebrew? And what does that mean? Am I an Egyptian? And what does that mean? Now he's at a place... I'm not a Hebrew or an Egyptian I'm a Midianite and remember he lives there for 40 years if you do something for 40 years live in the same place for 40 years with the same people for 40 years start speaking the same language for 40 years you really start becoming that you even wonder was the even the memory of who I was and what I was gonna was that even there anymore maybe it had been so long he didn't even think that was ever gonna happen But God brings him into the desert. He's got nothing there. And it just so happens he comes to an oasis, to a well in the desert. And he is immediately given an opportunity once again. So you you see the dream in Moses doesn't fully go away. As soon as he gets there, there's a well. And these seven daughters of Reuel go down to get water. But these evil shepherds go down there and chase them away. And what does Moses do? Here he is again, the savior-deliverer guy. And he comes in and he drives them all off, scares them, beats them, whatever it was he did. He got them all to leave. And the daughters of Ruel run back. And this is how Moses is known. He's this savior-deliverer guy, and he's brought in, and he's brought into the family, and he is offered one of the daughters, and he marries her, and he has a son, and he builds a new life. And I think what God was teaching him here is that ultimately you need to look to God to to provide and to call. You don't have to trust in Egypt where you grew up and where you had all your, your wealth and your security. That you can follow God, you can seemingly lose it all, and in the desert, God will make a place for you. That it's in the desert that God often forms his leaders for leadership. I don't think it's a mistake on a practical note that the story Moses is known for, the Exodus, in which the children of Israel will be led out of Egypt over, over a 40-year period through the wilderness, that for 40 years, Moses is a Midianite, a semi-nomadic people, learning all the tricks of the trade of how to survive in the harsh conditions of the desert. There's a reason Egypt grew up so powerfully and the Nile is a large piece of why. Access to water was everything. People would fight over water, kill over water. It was worth more than gold. Water in the Nile. So to learn how to survive in a place where there aren't great rivers, there aren't great streams, how do you find water? How do you hunt? How do you survive the heat? How do you make temporary dwellings since you're gonna have to up and go because you can't grow anything? He didn't learn that in Egypt. A big city. He learned all these skills he was going to need out in Midian. In the place he seemingly would never have been had he not failed in the first place. And I believe it is during this time that God taught Moses to look to the rock. Because the pressure was going to come one day, not just for yourself, But there's going to be people following you, Moses. There's going to be people following you, and they're going to say, how are we going to survive? How are we going to live? Where's the food going to come from? Who's going to pay our bills? How is it going to get done? And Moses, all that pressure is going to be on you. And you're going to need to learn to look to me as the one who provides and calls And Moses is learning this in the wilderness. My question for you is, have you learned to trust in the Lord alone for provision? This is the lesson Moses needed to learn. It's the lesson that was probably most hard for Israel. As they are led out, they keep thinking, well, Egypt provided for us. Maybe we should go back there. We had it so we knew where things were coming from. It was predictable. I knew where things were coming from. Here we are in the wilderness in these makeshift tents and we never know literally where our next meal is going to come from. We want to go back to what's predictable and familiar. Many of us would do the same thing. Perhaps we are doing the same thing. We are not trusting in the Lord alone for our provision. And I just want to encourage you, along with this lesson of Moses, all of us have to go through it. In some way or another, are you looking to the Lord for provision? And lastly, are you able to look to the Lord for the timing of your call? Maybe you have a dream, you have ambition, you have hope. And like Moses, early on, you, you attempt to engage in it, you attempt to make it happen, and it seems like an utter failure. And you can kind of give up on the dream or, or think, well, God's not sovereign or it would have worked out the way that I wanted to. And what in the world is it I'm doing now? This isn't even related to this at all. I'm not even in the right place to deal with all of that. And yet we see here this whole time in what looks completely separate from what Moses thinks God is preparing him for his call, but the timing has to be right. And it wasn't even in the first third of his life wasn't even in the second third, but the realization of the dream and of the call is in the last third of his life. Can you trust God for the timing of his calling on your life? And I assure you, if we can look to the life of Moses and say, yes, God's calling and timing and provision were just right, then we too, by faith, can believe that his timing and His provision will be right for ours. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before You this morning and we thank You so much for inspiring these words to be written. Lord, I thank You for the man Moses that You really raised him up. That he was born under adverse conditions, harsh conditions, conditions that none of us would desire. And yet it was because of these things he becomes the man whom history knows of as the one who leads Israel out of Egypt. Lord, we thank you that with you there is no failure that cannot lead to success because ultimately you are after our hearts. You're not thrilled or impressed with the giftedness of people as though it serves you some purpose you could not achieve for yourself. But rather you delight in a humble and contrite spirit and failures in life, whether business or family or anything else, can become a tool to humble us and to remind us of who we are and how much we need you And as painful as that is, it is a delight for all souls to know that all we need is you. Lord, I pray you would teach us to look to you for provision. Maybe we've learned it in the past. We have stories we can tell about how we were broke. We had nothing. We had no car, had no food, had no this, had no that. And you provided But maybe we're in a season today. And it just feels different. But the challenge is the same. Will we look to you to provide? Lord, I know some of us are wrestling over a calling. What's my meaning in life? I just feel like I'm ticking away the hours that make up a dull day. And I just wake, get up, and repeat, and do it again. I don't see where it's going. Lord, I just pray that anyone here lacking a sense of call on their lives would hear the voice of your Spirit saying, I have a call on your life. I am able to use you for eternal purposes. If you will humble yourself, wait on my timing, and do my will. Prepare us as a church, I pray to receive our call, our call to love you with all our hearts, and the call to love everyone who comes in these doors, to treat them as family, to treat them as friends, and to never give up in that pursuit, no matter how many times someone hurts us, but to keep going just as you never gave up on us. Help us to love everyone that comes into our lives as well. Pray for a blessing now on this time of response in Jesus' name. Amen.